We're picking up this morning uh, with a series that we began last week. Because we want to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ, people who are apprenticing ourselves to him in every area of life, we're taking a little bit of time this spring to think about one of the key areas in life, and that is the area of family. We said right at the outset that we'd be addressing this question of family in a way that includes everyone, married or not, parent or not. I hope you had a sense of that last week when we started our series together. Uh, By the way, if you missed last Sunday's teaching, I'd encourage you to catch up on YouTube or or on the podcast. Um, What we're talking about today will build on what we were thinking about last week. Last week we were thinking about the place of the family in the purposes of God. We learned from God's word that Jesus supports the biological family, but that he has decentered it and placed it forever under a first family of his followers, the community that we call the church. This morning we're going to build on what we were learning last week about the church as a first family, and we're going to think about singleness. Now, that might seem a little bit strange to you, that in a short series of only four uh, sermons, we're going to give an entire Sunday to, to singleness. But maybe that's just revealing of some of our underlying assumptions. A lot of churches see single people as peripheral. The core members are those who belong to families. In these churches, people assume that normal singles will sooner or later marry and start a family. Last week, we saw Jesus Christ turn some of our dearest assumptions about families on their head. And I'm going to encourage you to expect more of the same today. We come to God's word here today and we'll see that both Jesus and Paul affirm singleness. And they tell us that in some ways it's a better way of life for a Christian than marriage. Again, this is controversial stuff. But once we start to think about it, we'll see that what we're saying here this week is really just uh, an outworking, one specific application of what we were learning last week, that the family of God really is our first family. If you're taking notes or simply wanting to follow the argument, look out for these three movements as I'm teaching today. We'll explore, first of all, our assumptions about singleness then Jesus' view of singleness, and how, thirdly, how we want to think about singleness here at Hamilton Road. Okay, so that first movement, our assumptions about singleness. I've already said that both Jesus and Paul agreed that singleness was in some ways better than marriage and family life for a Christian. Even in a third millennium liberal democracy like ours, where marriage and family have been under stress for decades, we're still a long way off agreeing with the assumption that singleness could be better than marriage. Even in our society, where many people are single, uh, where much much of our identity is caught up 
in being in a relationship or at least having the potential of being in a relationship. Jesus claimed that singleness might be superior. Sounds pretty controversial even to us. If it sounds controversial to us, Jesus' claim in his day would have been more controversial by far. The assumption then was that married life was the good life, and that assumption simply couldn't have been questioned in Jesus' culture. That society had little or no place for singleness. When you read the Old Testament, you discover that pretty much everyone is married. There was no priestly celibacy in Israel. There has been throughout the history of the church. There still is in some branches of the church today, but not in Israel. Priests were married. Even people who were getting serious with God, who were making vows of commitment to God, like the Nazarite, nobody was ever vowing to not marry. Not only was pretty much everyone married in Israel, for a Hebrew not to be married was a catastrophe. We get some insight into this world in the opening verse of Isaiah 4. The prophet is describing there the, the worst kind of judgment that could fall on the people. And he describes it in terms of people not being able to marry. He says, in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and will say, we'll eat our own food, we'll provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In Israel, not to be married was a disgrace, it was a curse. In contrast, the Old Testament vision of the life of blessing was to have big crops, big herds, and a big family. A man's or a woman's life simply wasn't complete if he or she didn't marry and have children. Marriage was so much taken for granted that in the biblical Hebrew, there is no word for a bachelor. So Israel was relentlessly given to marriage and family. Why was that? Well, let me point you to a couple of reasons very quickly. I'll, I'll call them covenant and legacy. Covenant, we've already thought about this last week. Ever since God's promise to Abram, or, or the covenant with Abram, that he would use his family to be a blessing to the whole world, biological family had become a symbol and a channel of God's promise to his people. The prophets used marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with his people Israel. He was the husband and she the usually wayward wife. Marriage was right at the heart of the psyche of the people of God. So Jesus' first audience assumed the centrality of marriage because of what they, they believed about the covenant on the one hand, but also for a second, maybe less familiar reason. There's another aspect of Jewish belief that influenced their view of singleness, and that's their desire for a legacy. Let me explain. The Hebrews of the Old Testament didn't have a very full or developed view of the afterlife. So we have Job saying, chapter 7, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, 
and they'll come to an end without hope. He compares the dead person to a cloud that fades and vanishes. In Psalm 88, the psalmist repeatedly demonstrates that his hope is in God, and it's primarily focused on this life. He laments that he is set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. So evangelical theologian John Cooper concludes that for the Israelites, the afterlife was hopelessly pale and dull compared to the blessed and full earthly life. Sheol, the the resting place of the dead, is referred to as the pit. Why have I told you this? Why is it important to understand? Understanding the Hebrew view of the afterlife, we get a a fresh insight into their relentless preoccupation with marriage and biological family. For a Jew, if you have a a limited view of the afterlife, the only meaningful way to create a legacy was to have sons, to have children, to have sons in particular, and to hand over your name to them so that your name will go on. For the most part, this is the eternal life that an Old Testament Jew longed for. A family loyal to him, sons who would be a credit to him and would carry on the family name. For a traditional Jew, nothing was worse than the extermination of the family name through your failure to bear children. Perhaps you've never heard this before or thought about it very much. Perhaps you're wondering whether what I'm describing really was a significant part of the Jewish worldview and their assumptions about marriage and family. Let me show you. Let me take you to one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of the Bible for me. Isaiah 56. Turn with me. You haven't used your Bible very much yet, so turn with me. Isaiah 56 on page 743. It's a chapter full of messianic hope. It's a chapter about how the outsider is to be brought in and how the disqualified will be qualified through their faith in the Messiah. Look at verse 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. There it is, by the way, the stuff that we talked about last week. It's our obedience to the Lord, our faithfulness to the covenant, rather than biology that qualifies us as part of the family of God. To these eunuchs, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Israel may have set its hope on marriage and family, but all along, centuries before Christ, God was making a provision for single people to have a name, to have an eternal name, to have eternal significance in the family of God. 
So let's sum this up quickly, part one. What were the Jewish assumptions about marriage and family? The Jewish people believed that marriage was the only way to a good life because they saw it as a vehicle of God's covenant and because they saw it as the way to have, have legacy. Jesus coming and his new covenant challenges the Jewish understanding at both these points. Jesus' new first family of faithful followers is right at the heart of the church because of God's new covenant with Jesus Christ. Those who've trusted in Jesus Christ don't carry the burden of creating a name for themselves and creating some sort of eternal legacy. They take God at his word. They believe that he can give them something better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will endure forever. For Christians, our hope of eternal life is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've started to, to move, so that, that brings us now to our second movement in this, this sermon. We've thought about the, the, the views of, of marriage and family, the traditional assumptions. What about Jesus' view of marriage? Flick with me now to those passages which Neil read for us earlier. First of all, Matthew 19, page 986. Jesus has been telling his disciples of God's standards for marriage. They are frightened by Jesus' demands. So they say in verse 10, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. So Jesus picks up on that. He talks about not marrying or remaining single. He says, not everyone can accept this word, that is, accept the single life but only those to whom it's been given. And then he goes on to talk about three types of eunuchs. Forgive me, I'll, I'll take a moment to, to quickly uh, explain what Jesus is saying here. The word eunuch generally refers to a man who's been castrated, who's had his sexual organs surgically removed or disabled. Uh, it's not something we're very familiar with these days, but it was common enough in, in Jesus' day. In some ancient eastern courts, for example, main male servants, if they attended uh, the, the royal household, they, they would be castrated in order to avoid possible uh, sexual activity uh, with the members of that household. Advisors and others close to the king, they were made eunuchs so that they wouldn't be corrupted by sex or distracted uh, to have a family. So those are the most literal kinds of eunuchs. They're the second type, if you look carefully on Jesus' list, those who have been made eunuchs by others. Jesus expands on the concept of a eunuch here, describing some men as being born that way. He's talking here probably about people who, who maybe naturally lack sexual desire or the ability to have sex. It might include those who are born with physical complications, as well as those with sexual desires that are incompatible with marriage. Then Jesus adds a third kind of eunuch, 
those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Given the broader sense of how Jesus is using the word, this doesn't need to mean literal castration, probably doesn't. Rather, he's talking figuratively of those who set aside their sexual desire and their right to be married in order to to serve the Lord in a more single-minded devotion. He concludes by saying that anyone who can accept this should accept it. Okay, what, what is Jesus Christ saying here? He's talking to a community that carried all those assumptions that we've just been thinking about. A community that thought marriage and biological family was the only way to live a good life. And Jesus says, no. Singleness is acceptable. In fact, it can be preferable when a person chooses to remain single for the purpose of service in God's kingdom. Just as we said last week, this is controversial and it's radical stuff. Jesus' teaching in this passage was clearly accepted by the early church. Turn with me just for a last Bible passage to that other passage we read, 1 Corinthians 7, page 1149. We don't have time this morning to look in detail at the discussion here, but notice the reason that Paul gives for not marrying. Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. So Paul recognizes that the married person has more demands on their time and energy than the same person would have if they were single. When we marry, and even more so when we have children, we take on extra responsibilities and anxieties. I don't think Paul is criticizing marriage at this point. He's simply telling us what it's like. He's speaking the truth. He's opening our eyes to reality. I know this in my own life. I have to be careful regarding commitments that I take on either in Hamilton Road or beyond Hamilton Road so that I don't neglect my family. As a married man and as a father, I don't have the luxury of making my decisions myself. There are others I have to keep in mind. Family complicates things. This is how and why singleness is better in Paul's eyes. So to summarize Jesus' teaching and Paul's, they recognize that many will marry, but they've freed believers up from this notion that marriage is the only way to find significance. For them, a single person is a full member of God's first family because of the the new covenant. For them, a single person has eternal significance because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And for Jesus and Paul, single people have full dignity in the family of God and a wonderful role to play in God's service. 
So we've thought about our assumptions about singleness. We've seen how Jesus challenges us and calls us to revise our assumptions. We'll spend the last couple of moments considering how we're going to think about singleness here in Hamilton Road. As I begin, I want to pause for a moment to recognize the heartache that often goes with singleness. Although some people are single by choice, there are others who desire nothing more than to be in a a loving relationship, to be married, to a family. We have people here this morning who are waiting to be married. We have people here this morning who were married but are now divorced. We have people here whose marriage partner has died. For many people, their singleness is a heavy burden to bear. I want to say to anyone who's single in any of these ways this morning, we see you. And we love you. And we want to be a better family to you. Let me suggest two ways that we're going to think about our single members, the single members of our church family here in Hamilton Road. First of all, we will honour single people. Single people won't be treated as though they are peripheral, as though families make up the core of our church and single people only fill the gaps and make up the numbers. We'll not dishonor single people by treating them as though they're incomplete, as though their lives are on hold until Mr. Right or Miss Right comes along. Over the years, I've observed what church families sometimes do to single people. We tolerate behaviors here that quite simply wouldn't be accepted in the secular society beyond our walls. Isn't that terrible? The idea that we might be worse in here than this culture that doesn't yet know Jesus? We approach single people and we ask them, well, how's your love life? When are you ever going to get around to getting a man or a woman? That isn't kind. Perhaps you think it's funny. It's not. A person who understands what it is to be part of the first family of God will never speak in those terms. If we're really learning to be the family of God here on Hamilton Road, we will learn to honor single people. By the way, I don't know if this has ever occurred to you, but honoring single people might just be one of the very best things we can do to help anyone in our church family or close to it who who struggles with same-sex attraction. In this church, we teach that same-sex attraction isn't a sin, but that same-sex practice is. That means that we're asking a person who is same-sex attracted to be a voluntary celibate 
to choose singleness. We can't call people to a life of singleness on the one hand and dishonor the single life on the other hand. That posture has no integrity and is intolerably cruel. So the first thing we're going to learn to do is to honor singleness. Secondly, we're going to learn to share life together regardless of our family status. We thought just a moment ago about the frustration and the pain that can come with single life. Married people aren't exempt from frustration and pain. Both single people and married people need each other. We need to see each other and encourage each other as we learn to be this first family of the church that we're called to be. We can include each other and help one another. So for example, married couples, we can soften the loneliness of single people by including them in in our family life. There's no rule that says once you're married, you can only invite married people to dinner. You'd think there was, but there isn't. There there just isn't a rule. I haven't found it. There's no rule that says that a family can't invite a single person to come and, and join them for a family day out. What about holidays? Often the loneliest time of all for a person who is single. Could you imagine a married couple or a family that you are, could you imagine inviting a single friend to come and join you on a family holiday? Let's learn to think outside the box. Jesus Christ came into this world to set us free from life in the box. With Jesus, there is no box. We are the family of God. Every one of us equally valuable to him. Every one of us a son and daughter to him. Every one of us a brother and sister to each other. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being our teacher for providing for us in the written word. Jesus, we thank you for coming among us and interpreting that word for us, speaking about it and living it out. And Spirit, we thank you that you've been here among us today, making this new and real for us. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for the times when we have thought wrong about these questions of marriage and family and singleness. Forgive us for the times when we have allowed the culture that we live in today to shape our thinking. That culture gets many things wrong and it doesn't reflect accurately the kingdom of God. Lord, forgive us for the times when we have allowed a traditional British culture to shape our thinking. That culture too got many things wrong in relation to the kingdom of God. 
Lord, we want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We want your word to shape us. We want your word made flesh to be our example. We want to be apprenticed to him. Lord, teach us in this area of family and marriage and singleness to reflect Jesus Christ, to honor every member of our church family and to share our lives together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.